You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 104th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I have with me a master counselor, excellent professor, and person known for his meditation and mindfulness workshops, Tim Pedigo. Tim is highly competent at being present with everyone he speaks with, and I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. Dr. Tim Pedigo has 34 years of clinical experience working with trauma and has applied his learning to the teaching and learning of psychotherapy at the university where he works. He is the coordinator of the Master's in Clinical Psychology program at Governor State University. He is authorized as a meditation instructor and teaches mindfulness courses to undergrads and graduates in psychology. He is also certified as an instructor in cognitive-based compassion training, CBCT, through Emory University and teaches CBCT every semester. Welcome, Tim, and thank you so much for joining us today to talk about self-discovery and your approach to it. Thank you, Kim, and hello, everybody. Let's start with a question on mindfulness. Can you tell us exactly how you would define that and how is it relevant in a person's life? Well, overall, mindfulness is really about being present. Technically speaking, John Kabat-Zinn who's kind of a father of uh, American mindfulness, would put it this way. It's paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment or with acceptance. Uh, Another way to think of it in just everyday sense of it is when you're like communicating with someone who's really present, it feels like they're there in in the sense that they listen, but also in the sense that they share truly with you. And it offers a sense of deeper connection. As someone who's had conversation with you, I know what that feels like. And there's an intensity to that interaction that feels, well, (laughs) I can't think of a better word than present, but it's presence and it feels like a present, a gift, because we don't get that a lot in our lives. Right. That's a nice way to think of it, to think of we're gifts to each other and that life is a gift. So there's a real basic choice, right? Speaking of choices, to live that way. Not that we can always do it. And that's why it's important to be forgiving and be able to let go because mindfulness practice, the meditation is really in some ways you could say a letting go practice, forgiving, letting go, starting afresh, starting new. Unexpected things happen that disturb us like losing our cell phones and things like that. as just happened to me before this podcast. So thank you for remembering. But for those of you listening, it's been found again. So I am back to present. Yay. Yay. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, you talk about forgiveness and letting go. The forgiveness is not just for others, but also for ourselves, isn't it? It is. Part of when we talk about presence, we're talking about not hanging on to past stuff which turns a lot of times into the fear of the future. Being able to see that we make mistakes, that it's human, and being able to forgive and not obsess about, because my colleague, Dr. Fegan Kerrigan, who I work with now, her specialization is regret. 
And so we're combining mindfulness with regret. And the whole idea is to not obsess about the mistakes of yesteryear, to see them as learning opportunities, to see ourselves evolving. The mistakes are to be utilized as growth. Another word that I heard you use in your definition that I think is important to describe more fully is acceptance. When I work with people, I find that a lot of misery is self-created by not accepting what is reality, what has already happened. Is that the kind of acceptance that you're talking about in mindfulness? Yeah. It pushed to the deep belief of within Buddhism and mindfulness is the sense that all of our suffering actually is created by our minds, how we construe our sense of self and other people. That's why examining our own minds is so important. Not always easy. (laughs) I was just talking with a client earlier today, very much a mindfulness practitioner, and she was meditating before we talked, and she was discovering things about herself that she didn't know, she didn't realize, and she was not so happy. (laughs) She's working so hard to be honest and see and be clear that she's doing great work. And the more she can be loving and kind with herself, with what she's discovering, the more transformation and growth will occur. But sometimes we need a little help with that because there can be like, OMG, I can't believe it, right? I'm doing that. Right. I love that. What would you say is the difference between reacting and responding? Part of what slowing down does and calming ourselves as it takes us out of the survival reactive mind, which is governed by the midbrain in the amygdala that's in that area. When we are operating from our emotional brain, like most people don't even realize they are, something happens in our outer world. It goes right into the emotional survival brain and we find ourselves just reacting. We don't actually reflect on what we're saying. There's some kind of trigger in what someone has said, something we've been through before, All of that just gets applied to the present without much reflection. When you can not so much react, slow down, and engage your prefrontal cortex, you have a fuller brain reaction using the wiser place of your brain. And then you can notice, oh, that's a reaction. I don't need to follow that. Let me reflect on this. That's why people who are mindful will sometimes pause because that's what's going on there. And then they can choose their response. I I like to say they're responding then. Yes. And then there's really a sense of choice. In some ways, you could say mindfulness practice is choice practice. Yeah, I think that it really is. I know that I've been working with this couple who I think are very trauma bonded with each other. He says something and she gets defensive about an experience from childhood and he does exactly the same. So I've asked them to pause, just like you said, not knowing really, not having studied mindfulness, I asked them to pause. And when they are feeling defensive, to say to their partner, what I heard you say is this, is that what you meant? Just for clarity's sake, because they're attributing all kinds of ill will to their partner who they love and trust, but they're in that throes of the past. They're reacting instead of responding. Exactly. And there's nothing like intimacy to get those triggers going. And my sense is that we actually, more than we realize, we tend to bond with people based on history. And then all of a sudden, all that stuff comes up. One way to look at it is close relationships are a great way to work through your reactivity and to find loving responsiveness instead. 
which helps the relationships, but helps your own evolution and growth. Yes. When we can see our partners as our teachers and not our enemies, it can really go in that direction. Yes. I love that. Is mindfulness something we have to develop? Are we born with it? We have to work at it. What is it? At this point in my own development, I see it as a little of both. That is the same. We don't get to really choose the conditioning under which we're born and the history as kids. By the time we start getting aware of ourselves, whenever that is, sooner the better, we already have that history in us and those reactive patterns and that emotional brain. But we also have from the beginning, the capacity more than any other species on earth to be able to stop and be aware of ourselves and to be able to make choices. In that sense, we say we have the raw material for being more enlightened people. It's all there. It's a matter of settling down and using it. We call that cultivating. You have to take that capacity for love, for sensitivity, for awareness, for wisdom, and make it work for you. In that sense, we say you have to work on it in terms of training the mind. One thing I say to people who are having some reactive pattern that's so strong is, can we get your mindfulness at least as strong, if not stronger, than your reactive mind? then it's strong enough to stop and pause before you just find yourself reacting. It just occurred to me that perhaps we are born with it and we forget it. Because when I think of infants and toddlers, I don't know of anybody more mindful than a child. But somehow we learn to regret the past and worry about the future and lose our present moment. So in practicing mindfulness as an adult, might it be more of a remembering It really is. I have a client now who's taking care of an infant, and she's seen the infant as her own teacher of enlightenment. And she shows me the pictures, I think like seven months old. The bonding's going very well. And it's really kind of a challenge for her to come out of her worried mind and her preoccupation and just be present when this infant gazes at her. In a sense, the infant already knows. I'm trying to give us all a break when I say, inevitably, everybody loses that. It's normal to do that. They haven't been affected as much by the conditioning. This client has taken care of young kids before. And what's sad is when you see the brilliance and the openness and the love of such an infant, and then you see the conditioning start setting in. It can feel very sad if you're aware of that and see it from the outside, but also very human part of our journey is my point there. That brings me to a question about personal growth and how is mindfulness connected to that? I talk about this month of January, my podcasts are about self-discovery. So how does mindfulness help us discover ourselves and then grow? By stopping and helping us be aware, like I was referring to this client that she's discovering, especially some OCD patterns. Because she's devoted herself to awareness, she can now see these areas. So then what we work on in mindfulness is self-compassion. I instructed her to just put her hand over her heart and speak to that place that feels anxiety and just say, I'm here with you in as loving a way as she can. There's a point at which mindfulness morphs into self-compassion and then compassion for others. This is a development over time. When I first started, I remember at meditations, I was like, OMG, because I started to see and feel things. 
there is this initial adjustment for sure. But then when you get more traveled with it, you suddenly have this attitude of personal growth is, okay, good. I see that now. That's really helpful. And that's going to allow me to grow. The gift of seeing things as opposed to what can feel like the curse or why am I that way? (laughs) As we get more traveled and not judging ourselves and we see that we're in this whole life of evolving, then life becomes a continued growth process. I love that. How much of this mindfulness journey contains a looking back to how you developed these patterns, or is it just recognizing and letting go? Both can be true, depending on the individual. Sometimes for me, it helps my compassion to understand that I was in pain and to understand that about other people. And when I can learn that story a little bit, then my heart can open more to a warmer feeling. I don't think any of us would want to do the defensive things we do that don't apply to the situations. I mean, sometimes you need to be assertive, but a lot of times we can just be reacting. We don't really want to do that, but there's some pain underneath that hasn't been resolved. Going back in and of itself is that important, but if it helps generate the self-compassion and understanding, which is the medicine of really being able to feel better and be connected with yourself in a warm way that can allow things to heal and where you can let go more. Yeah, that makes sense. Another thing you said I wanted to check in on, you mentioned self-compassion first and then compassion for others. Is that always the way? Well, it can go all kinds of ways. I know a lot of people who've been very easily compassionate with others are really hard on themselves. That's usually where the breakdown starts to occur after a while, but the harshness of self. You could say that their compassion for others was real, but it wasn't really sustainable. As we develop our compassion, we're meant to be included in that. Somehow or another, there develops this idea that we exclude ourselves from it. People think, well, that could be selfish. You know, you're supposed to think of others. Compassion for self allows for greater, more substantial altruism. Part of a reality where you're included in the compassion, you're just going to be a warmer person. I come from a background of neglect, right? Alcoholic parents didn't even understand what I was missing for years. (laughs) And just like something was wrong and it must be me. I was one of those who started trying to be compassionate towards others and yet suffered silently it was really good news to realize that I mattered too, you know, and that I could be compassionate towards myself and that that would help. There's kind of a sneaky kind of self-neglect and self-criticism that many of us can get caught in that parallels our histories. Yeah. That's why I asked about forgiveness. Does that include self also? As long as we're forgiving ourselves, we need to also then develop some compassion for our former self. And I find one of the things people do often is they judge their former self based on who they are today, forgetting Mm -hmm. that they're very different than they were when they had Mm -hmm. that regret that the person who did what they're beating themselves up about did the best they could in that moment. It helps towards compassion to remember that. You can't judge your yesteryear by who you are today. Yeah. To me, I see that as remnants of still having that. They've tried to let go, but then it sneaks back in to that kind of judgment. Yeah. And 
We'd even say in mindfulness that any self we create in our minds is a construction. And the question is, does it actually fit what's going on now? More than not, we're unrealistic with ourselves, unrealistic with what we were going through or what we're going through now. One of the radical things that I've learned through cognitive-based compassion training is that being realistic and being compassionate go together. Really, if you really take a substantial realistic perspective, when you really see what's happening there, you'll say, oh, I'm unrealistically negative towards myself. Mm-hmm. Of course, at times then does create an opportunity for humility to see the things that you can't control. You know, the serenity prayer, right? I do. Yeah. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Starts off with that, the courage to change the things I can. And then the wisdom to know the difference. See, my sense is people have a lot more difficult with the first part and they want to change the things they cannot change. And then they judge themselves as if they should be able to. Right. That's why the wisdom part really matters. Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I love that serenity prayer. I know you talk about shadow work. I'm wondering, first of all, what that is and what role that plays in personal growth. Well, in mindfulness, as well as in Buddhism, there's an understanding that sometimes the very stuff that we don't want to face in ourselves, that we ignore, that we push aside, that goes into the shadow, is the stuff that will tend to project to. A lot of times I will ask clients sometimes students, the intensity of their reactivity, and then bring it back a little and say, well, have you gone through anything like this before? Is there anything prior to what you just experienced with this person in this situation that has caused pain? Typically has led to a kind of bridge to an aspect of their experience that they haven't been able to give care to before. I think it's human, but it's worth being aware of boy, look how strongly I reacted there. That was a little bit out of proportion to what was going on and to be able to investigate that. A lot of that goes on now. You see it on the media. I mean, one side triggers the other side and there's just continued escalation. Of course, in intimate relationships, that happens too. Can we step back and say, oh, I'm reacting so much. Where's there pain in here that maybe I need to take a look at or something that I just haven't been able to be aware of up to this point? I remember reading Alan Shore, who's one of the neuroscientists for therapists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has a book, Art and Science of Therapy. He actually suggests that before we can become aware, we have to find ourselves in this kind of reactivity, in this kind of enactment, that there's places in the brain that actually travel through behavior first before they can lead to awareness. Interesting observation or suggestion about how we operate. Yeah, I like that. So we have to notice what we're doing before we can get to what's happening behind all of that. And we've hidden it because it's painful. We don't want to look at it. So we have to develop some courage in that, I would imagine. Courage and humility, because I like it to be everybody else and not me. It's kind of like your rendition of the serenity prayer. (laughs) Let me tell you what's wrong with you and you and you. (laughs) Yeah, I got it all clear. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That is so insightful. You've given us a lot to think about regarding self-discovery this month of January as people are working through their goals and the things they want to accomplish in 2022. 
I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to add that we didn't already speak about. Touched on it, but I'll add this, especially given the context of our interview. What I often say, both clients and meditation students, is this is a journey. It's going to have phases and stages. Probably the best and most important place to start off is gentleness towards yourself. Mm. And really working on a kind of awareness that allows for more awareness. When you can be your friend, when you can actually count on you, when you get aware of things to be with yourself, then you can maintain a type of presence where you can be relaxed with yourself and then other people. So instead of perfection, which our culture pushes, let yourself be the imperfect human that you are, but still loved and still cared for and compassionate with from yourself. That's beautiful. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. Tim, if people wanted to reach you, if they have any further questions or are interested in one of your workshops, how could they reach you? Probably the easiest would be to contact my university email at tpedigo, P-E-D-I-G-O, at G-O-V-S-T dot E-D-U. Okay, terrific. I'll put that in the show notes for people who want to reach out. And I want to thank you so much for being with us. I know this means you had to take an hour away from your private practice to talk to us. So I totally appreciate that. I just can't thank you enough for what you've shared. You're very welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you join me next week when I'll be changing the topic to relationships and interviewing a couple who have found their soulmates in each other. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.